this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me as always is the host, John Chalkowski. Well, hello. So, Andy, what can you tell me about the name John Brashear? He has a high school named after him. That he does. That he does. What else? He has a high school named after him. <laughs> there you go. Some might know that. You know, some might not know that at all. Other people might recognize him as being somehow involved with Allegheny Observatory or just astronomy in general, um, but maybe not know who this man was. And when I tell you this guy is an inspiration, I'm not lying. <laughs> and, uh, I decided before recording this episode, I had a, I, I bought his a first edition of his autobiography uh, that came out a couple of years after he passed away. He never f- was able to finish the book. However, what is in the book was so fantastic, and I ended up reading the entire 300-page thing in one sitting. And um, it's inspiring, uh, this guy's story. And... Uh, it's a shame that he's not the tip of your tongue, you know, when you think about Pittsburgh or Pittsburghers, you know, you think of H.J. Hines, Andrew Carnegie, George Westinghouse, maybe, um, all these names, you know, attached. And, and, and he kind of just goes by the wayside as just kind of like this soft mention of, oh, there's a high school after him or there's the Brashear Association down the south side or, um, you know, or, or the Allegheny Observatory. But who was this man? And how did he change the entire world by what he was passionate about? And uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today on this episode of the Pittsburgh Oddcast. The story of John Alfred Brashear. Now, Pittsburgh opened up more pathways to the stars than any other city in American history. Now, think about that. <laughs> right. When I think of astronomy, well, you know, I don't necessarily think of Pittsburgh, the smokiest city. Yeah, yeah. The, the the West, where they have the observatories. Someplace where it's generally not smoky, right? Um, especially in that time period. And yet, Pittsburgh, one of the smokiest towns of them all, uh, was the home to such innovation that um, Albert Einstein, while touring the country in the 1930s, chose Pittsburgh to give his very first American speech. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, <laughs> And that shows you just how important uh, Pittsburgh was in the uh, and the Allegheny Observatory. And we will be recording an episode on the Allegheny Observatory in the very near future because that alone is a fantastic tale. And the accomplishments that came out of that with Samuel Langley and, and all the other people that were later, um, you know, went through that uh, the Allegheny Observatory and why it was built and, and all the purposes that it served is a fascinating tale that will blow your mind. When I tell you that they were single-handedly responsible for the creation of what we today call standard time. In other words, that they invented time in there (laughs) at the Allegheny Observatory. Invented time. As we know it, yes. Um, That always fascinates me. So um, we will get into that. But in the meantime, we go back to another smoky city. Back then, at least. Brownsville, PA. Fayette County. Fayette County, about 40 miles away from Pittsburgh, right? Uh, on November 24th, 1840, little John Alfred Brashear was born, uh, the oldest of a series of seven kids, which would eventually come to his parents. And uh, he lived a very happy childhood and uh, was very close with his grandparents, like many people are. And his first experience uh, uh, of, of looking at the stars or knowing what the stars are, now you got to put yourself in perspective, 1840s, right? So you figure he's a kid now. He's 1848, okay? He's about eight years old. Eight or nine, yeah. Yeah, eight or nine years old. He, um, to look through a telescope or to even know what Saturn is, is something of a wonderment 
uh, it wasn't so you, you couldn't go to the Walmart, right, and go buy yourself a telescope. It still is today. It basically is, yeah. It's a specialty item, you know, that if you really wanted it, you have to go out and get it. And uh, But it was not readily accessible to the average layman. And um, John, while visiting his grandfather, this guy he called Grandfather Smith or you know, um, in Brownsville, who himself was just a tinkerer, a watchmaker, a watch repairman, and did many other mechanical type of inventions. He was able to, uh, you know, have young John sit on the grass in their yard, and he would look up at the constellations, and his grandfather would tell him stories of Orion and Pegasus, and you know, the the you know, all the different Gemini and and all the different stars, and how there's planets. You know, something that was still kind of a relatively new idea. Most people didn't know that planets had moons of their own, you know, or that there was more than just Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Earth. People didn't know. No one could see it, right? And technology for telescopes was also way behind of the times. Even the telescopes that Galileo used, okay, in the 1600s, he could see Mars, but it was fuzzy. You know, you couldn't really get a good picture of what was there. You knew something was there and unusual, but you couldn't really make it out. Um, and, and this was kind of a, a pressing issue that plagued American or world astronomers uh, for hundreds of years of how to successfully make a good crystal clear picture of outer space. Um, something that was the unknown at the time. It still is unknown, you know, to us. We know a lot more than we did back then, but... It's still so vast. It's still not much, yeah. I, I, I Don't get me down a rant talking about space because I'll be here all day. Anyways, he was inspired by his grandfather. Uh, all these great tales about the stars and the heavens and, and what they meant to him, and the, you know, the stories that are attached to constellations. My favorite he, constellation being Orion, you know, the hunter, right? And uh, to think, when you look up at those stars at night and you look at Orion— and the birthplace of stars in our galaxy, you know, the Ryan's belt. Uh, and to think that for thousands of years, people have stared up at the same exact constellation, the same thing that you're looking at right now. And you can experience a connection to the past by literally, because that's what you're looking it at. It is the past. <laughs> it is literally the past. And um, always as fascinated myself as a kid. And I'm sure fascinated many people listening. And uh, by the time he was nine years old, uh, a, a travel, a, a guy was traveling through Brownsville, and he had a good, nice, you know, telescope that he brought with him. And this was like a, you know, thing they advertised in the papers. And his grandfather saw this thing coming, so he said, hey, "I'm going to take my grandson and get an opportunity to look through this nice telescope and see the moon and you know Saturn for the first time, and to see the rings of Saturn." You know, it was such a. Have you ever seen the rings of Saturn through a telescope? Man, <laughs> I got to take it to the Allegheny Observatory uh, and see it because it will change your perspective on everything you've ever thought before. It is that impactful when you see the planet Saturn and those rings and you look through it and you find out that they're real. <laughs> they're not just something in a book or something you read about or heard about or a picture yeah, or just a picture. Nothing will prepare you for that, what it feels like to first see Saturn with your own eyes, the real thing, only you and Saturn. That's the only thing you're looking through. And, you know, It's a very personal and awesome experience. And John Bashir experienced this when I was nine years old, and it forever stayed with him for the rest of his life. No one, you couldn't go to the store and buy a telescope. It was pretty difficult to, to find one. So he just kind of put it on the back burner and decided to... Uh, you know, do something. He had to go to school, you know, and he was never a great student at school. He was always, you know, his head was always up in the in the stars, you know, or up in the clouds. You know, he was a dreamer. And uh, by the time he was 15 years old, he quit school and moved to Pittsburgh uh, with, and went to Duff's Mercantile College, okay, and uh, to become a uh, master bookkeeper because what else do you do when you don't know what to do? <laughs> go to a business college, become a bookkeeper, <laughs> right? So it went okay, and um, he he learned how to do a couple different things at uh, an engine works that was nearby, uh, including pattern making, and uh, this led him to a uh, uh, to get a job offer as apprentice in a place in Louisville, Kentucky. So he packs up everything he has, 1861, right? He moves to Louisville, Kentucky, all the way down there. Uh, while there. He uh, 
of course, it's not interesting. I mean, he's still interested in astronomy, but, you know, pressing issues come at hand. And while apprenticing there, the Civil War breaks out, right? He's 21 years old, um, you know, working in some factory. He says, look, I got to get out of here. You know, how am I going to, I need to get back to Pittsburgh up north. Otherwise, you know, we're in some serious trouble. So he doesn't have any funds whatsoever. He made, he was an apprentice, you know, he was working for free, uh, just learning the trade. So he, he quits there and he ends up getting a job making caskets for a local funeral director, right? And he was fascinated by just the wood plane and, and making things and, you know, making a coffin. However morbid that might seem, it it just, he found it enjoyable, you know, somewhat. And well, I mean, it sounds like that wouldn't be necessarily out of the realm of possibility with how he was fascinated by what he was fascinated by with space and everything. That's right. That's right. And just a more contained space. You know? <laughs> so, very contained space. Very contained. Um, anyways, um, he was able enough make enough money to get on a train or whatever and come back to Brownsville, eventually back to Pittsburgh, and got a job working as a millwright. Uh, because just like his grandfather, he was a tinkerer by trade, and like many people before him, like Westinghouse and others, people who never really had a good schooling education on how to become a mechanic were just good with their hands, were able to get good jobs. And he worked for the the Zug and Painter Factory here in in Pittsburgh. Now, Zug is funny because I, I've researched the history of Pittsburgh streets and the city directory, and the last name that's always in the city directory is Zug, you know, so I was well familiar when I was reading through his autobiography about who the Zug character was. And uh, I, I thought that was pretty funny. So he, uh, while working here, still not involved with astronomy, you know, just doing his work at, you know, at, at, the, at the shop. Uh, Millwright is somebody who goes in like today we would call a mechanical engineer. He's the guy who makes the machines and fixes the machines that break down in factories and figures out ways to transport them there and all that type of stuff. And um, so he he had a religious upbringing and, uh, in fact, was you know still confused about what he wanted to do with his life. And he decided to possibly become a priest and join the priesthood. And uh, while at a Methodist church here in Pittsburgh, he decides to uh, – the priest apparently got ill or something during one of the sermons. And they were looking for someone to fill in for a brief moment. And he steps up and says, I'll, I'll do it. you know. And, and he decides to, to do the sermon – or the homily, I guess now, on the first four verses of Genesis. Okay, the origin of the stars, you know, and then the moon and the earth and, you know, the people and all that, and Adam and Eve and all that good stuff. Um, and while, you know, he seemed to be doing okay, the priest uh, heard what he was saying and actually came back and snuck into the audience to kind of, like, see what this John Brashear was all about and came up to him afterwards and uh, and basically ruined his dreams of ever becoming a priest. If you ever do this again... <laughs> <laughs> well, listen what he said to him. There's a direct quote, and he quotes this in his autobiography about what this priest said to him. And it and it turned him off from being a priest for the rest of his life. Uh, although he was still heavily involved with the church the day he died, uh, especially the choir. And he even tinkered around with composing music at one time. Or, uh, and he said it, when he played it, it would put his wife to sleep. And he figured if it put her to sleep, it would put everyone to sleep. So he just gave it up. <laughs> right? But anyways, uh, this priest tells him after... The speech. By this time, everyone knew that Brashear's head was in the clouds, literally, and that while doing all these other jobs, he was still fascinated with just astronomy and the planets and space in general. And he would tell people that he worked with about planets and educate them about, uh, you know, different galaxies and the star constellations. And he would draw stuff on metal of like, you know, what the planets look like and their moons and cool, like little, almost like teaching astronomy to all these kind of laymen people who didn't really have any idea about what these things were. Uh, I mean, you got to you th think about the time period. I mean, the people had no idea. People thought the moon was made out of cheese, <laughs> you know, and people, uh, in fact, he talks about that um, later in life. We'll get there. Anyways, the priest goes to him. My young John, knowledge of creation is not necessary to the believer in the seeker of the truth. Think about that profound quote. That this priest tells young John Brashear, who know, he knows that he's into science. And you know that science and religion, while they can go hand in hand, don't necessarily uh, answer the questions that he's seeking. Uh, Brashear is looking for something more than just poof, here it is. <laughs> he wants to come up with the answer. 
And this priest tells him, you will not find that answer in the church. And this destroyed Brashear. I mean, he, he considered a slap in the face. He couldn't believe how insulted, you know, this guy was, you know, what this guy said to him. Uh, because his, his uh, you know, true self was, was, he wanted to do good for people. He knew that, and he figured the church could do that, but I guess he was wrong. And he was completely turned off. At least by this one priest. I mean, uh... <laughs> that was enough to affect him for the rest of his life. Because, I mean, he talks about it in his autobiography, just how horrible he felt. Like stomach churning almost, you know, and into this kind of his life. He just really threw him for a curveball. He thought he was going to be praised or whatever, and he wasn't. Um, he still got involved with the church, and and uh, and at the mill that he worked at, they had a small Sunday school because back in the day, uh, going to public school was a ordeal, you know, and private school didn't exist. So, I mean, it did for the very, very elite, you know, but it was uh, – uh, you taught Sunday school. So he figured, you know, what better way could I both do what I like to do and still work, have a job, is teach Sunday school on the weekends. And he gets his job teaching Sunday school, and he walks in, and there's this 18-year-old beautiful girl standing before him named, named um, Phoebe Stewart. Um, he doesn't immediately fall in love, but pretty much uh, he knows from that moment of walking in there and seeing her with the kids uh, that this is the girl that he will stay with for the rest of his life. And she would become an integral part of his story, a part that is unlike anybody we've talked about before, where she was an equal to Brashear. And he made sure of the fact that people knew this. And he credited everything, everything in his life, to her and to her influence and her inspiration. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those stories. He... Uh, so he, he meets up with her. This is 1862. Uh, within a year, they get married. And there's some tidbits about their marriage, which I, I won't get into, but they, uh, they they weren't allowed to get married at first. And then they you know, went behind their parents' back and did it anyways. And if you see a picture of young John Brashear, which I, I think we'll post on this episode, um, <laughs> I don't know if a girl in town would turn this guy away. I don't know if there is a better looking guy in 1862. No, it's like you said, a uh, a Brad Pitt Brad Pitt type. of the 1860s. I mean, this guy, um, very handsome man, very handsome man. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and it was a uh, surprisingly handsome, almost. You know, so that's a good thing to be surprisingly handsome. I'm sure opened the door a little bit, you know, for some of these things. And uh, he was able to get enough money. Everyone seemed to like him. That was the thing. Everyone, the places that he worked at, doing all these little odd jobs, everyone liked him. And he was given raises and given, you know, good things, you know, for his work. And he was able enough to save enough money to buy two lots of land on the south side slopes. Uh, if you go across the Birmingham Street Bridge and just keep on going straight up the hill uh, next to 22nd Street and 23rd Street, there's a little street up there on the hill called Holt Street. And he, he got these two small lots and uh, is a new young married man. He decides to, uh, with the help of his wife and people that worked at the mill, literally carry lumber up from downtown, you know, uh, pour the cement foundations himself, start with hammer and nails, and they built their own house. And he talks about that through his autobiography. How he built the, you know, the walls, you know, where he wanted the kitchen to be, uh, you know, what kind of insulation they're going to have. And he, he realized that he wasn't, he didn't have enough. Um, you know, it was like freezing cold, something half the time, you know, they didn't have enough insulation and stuff. And his, his wife at the time was, was, uh, so generous to the workers. In fact, there's a story that, um, she knew that they must've had a real rough day and tough. So she wanted to make them a nice, like oyster dinner, you know, oyster feast, right? So they went to the oyster house. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, they could have, because it was open by this time. <laughs> but anyways, they, uh, uh, she, you know, built this, but then she realized that they haven't installed the bathrooms yet or dug a hole, right? So, uh, and there's a story that he talks about how one guy had to run out of the house. You know, he didn't come back for another half an hour, but he did come back because her food was apparently very good and uh, treated everyone like an equal. And this is a story that would uh, continue throughout the rest of his life. And this is all stuff. They built this house after he got done with work every day. That's right. Every single day they'd work on their house, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, the they're early... Uh, Fixer uppers, as you could say. You know, I could imagine a reality show, you know, on TLC or something, uh, HGTV of them building their house. And um, by this time, uh, that that passion for astronomy is starting to come out there again. And uh, you could right away and uh, order a telescope if you really wanted to, if you had the money. Uh, and it was expensive, 
back then. And he said, you know what? I have a lot of materials down here at the shops, and I know people from having other jobs. He had many jobs around Pittsburgh, many different places. And uh, he said, you know what? I, I know a guy who has some glass, like an optician, you know, who has curved glass, you know, for glasses, spectacles and glasses. Uh, and maybe if I can order like a bigger piece of that, like raw or whatever, I could grind it down myself and the curvature of it and polish it and, and make it into a lens that I could somehow like get someone to build me a tube, you know, and, and, and make my own telescope from scratch. And he decides to do that very thing. And, uh, he buys a piece of glass from England. Okay. It takes months for it to arrive by boat and finally get the Pittsburgh to his home. A uh, big square piece of glass, right? He builds the actual lathe machines that, that could grind the glass down himself. It's a diamond, you know, this is how you grind glass. And um, carefully, over the course of months, spent polishing and grinding this thing so it was perfect. A five-inch piece of glass, you know, five inches in diameter, uh, which he could install onto a 20-foot-inch long telescope in order to see the stars. And realizing that if you could do it the right way and get the glass curved exactly right and polished perfectly, you could see for the first time ever in human history good, clear pictures of the stars. And uh, so he, he makes this small thing, uh, this five-inch you know, uh, diameter uh, telescope, and he goes to show his wife, uh, Phoebe, who was an integral, by this time an integral part. I mean, she's there with him every second of the day. She does not leave his side. She doesn't just disappear and go do things or whatever. She comes right next to him and holds the thing steady or whatever, you know, and they build it together as a team. Uh, he goes, look, I think we're finally done. He goes to show her and it slips out of his hands and it cracks into a hundred pieces on the ground. <laughs> right. Horrible. You know, this is the end of all ends for him. He's worked on this for months. I mean, it took, think about this 1860s. He's working in the factory by 1870s when he goes to that, builds the house. So this time he's only 30 years old. Okay. Put that in your mind. A 30 year old man. He's miserable. He almost doesn't know what to do with himself. He goes back to work the next day and he talks about that in his book. And he says that like, he's just, uh, he's just you know, careless, almost like a madman, doesn't know how to contain himself, what to do, and just miserable. But he's felt like, and he said he doesn't believe in telepathy, right? But he believes that he was felt like a message from home, from his fear, you know, from his dear Phoebe, uh, that uh, everything will be all right, right? So he leaves work this time in a happier mood, he goes walking up this hill. Now, the whole street was a ordeal to get up to this place. It was like, first of all, there's mud and dirt roads. There's no uh, roads that went to your place. You were just the middle of the hill. That's where you lived. And you, how you got up there was up to you, whether you built your own staircase, you know, how you got water there. There's a whole tale in there about how he was able to, like, pipe water from somewhere in, into the house. I mean, it's crazy. But he goes home. He's He goes in the house, you know, and he doesn't see Phoebe anywhere to be found. Um, by this time, they've already made a little shack kind of on the back of the house that they bought from a neighbor. I used to be a uh, a coal shed, and he converted into like a little laboratory where they could make all these lenses and things. And uh, he sees that Phoebe's in there, uh, has put a new fire under the boiler, everything's clean and perfect, new piece of glass is there waiting for him. And she goes, let's start it again, <laughs> right? And they did. And they were able to uh, complete it carefully, you know, and uh, mount it onto a telescope, put a little observatory at their house. And, you know, started shooting the night sky. Now, neighbors got wind of what he was doing up there and also his co-workers or whatever. And they would come by and they'd see if his light was on. Maybe they could come sneak by and just see, a, you know, a little shot of the moon before they go up to their own house or, you know, so go look at some of the planets. And he, um, he, he was no, never said no. <laughs> I mean, he didn't care if you were Andrew Carnegie himself or a beggar. All were equal in his house. And believe it or not, both those types of people, including Andrew Carnegie himself, did eventually go to his house to see through that telescope. So uh, it was so revolutionary, this five-inch lens, which was small. You could only see Saturn. You could only see the moon. You know, you could, you could see Mars. You couldn't see too much else. You know, and you could see some constellations, some star, you know, sister stars and cluster galaxies and stuff. But not uh, uh, it was enough that it was impactful. To everybody around him. And um, during this time in the life, this is before he was famous. I mean, he was just a guy who worked at the mill who built his own telescope. Where And he says he's not exaggerating when he says over the course of a year, a thousand people would come to his house of all types and shapes. 
and um, he realized what he was doing was was different. And uh, I'm going to read to you briefly a direct quote from his autobiography about his experiences of showing people the stars, some for the first time in their entire life. And he goes, this is on page 60 in his autobiography, if you ever buy it. And it says, I remember too, an old gentleman over 80 years old who climbed my hill one moonlight night to look into the telescope. The good man was utterly exhausted until he reached our house. He had to take many rest stops along the way. And Ma and I, he called his wife Ma, and Ma and I had to lie him down on the lounge to rest before even climbing the rest of the stairs to the telescope. The views of that night were very fine, and I can hear the soliloquy yet of the dear fellow, as he said, For many years, 80 years, I have desired to see the beauties of the heavens, and you have provided that opportunity to me. I've only read about them or heard them about them in lectures, and I've dreamed one night of seeing the beauty of the sky. Uh, we invited we invited him to stay all night long, but it was moonlight. It was much easier for him to go down the hill than it was to come up, and he insisted on going home. I went part of the way with him uh, just to make sure that he got along all right, and all the way he expressed his delight as having uh, the wish of a lifetime gratified that very night. He goes on to say, three weeks later, the funeral of that old man passed along our road in the opposite hillside that led to the cemetery. It has always been a pleasure of mine to remember that I was able to be of just a little service to a gratifying one of his desires of his entire lifetime. Um, he also goes on to say that I think that all of my life I've been partial to either old people or children, and that has always been a source of genuine pleasure to contribute to their happiness. And uh, he talks about these you know, everyone from street urchins to the rich. And, you know, I'm reading this last night, right, uh, where I read the book. And I'm like, we're the same guy. <laughs> you know, I, you know, we're not the same, you know, we're not, we're not telescope aficionados, but our mission in life is one and the same. And that is without worrying about a single cent, you know, you do it for the people. And you, uh, old people and kids, you know, I go around to senior age homes, you know, the people who tell me about, they hear me on the radio are all 70 and up, you know, and, and the, and the next step is going to talk to third graders and you get like kind of everybody in between, but the people that you notice you make the most impact on are those groups of people, the old and the children. That's exactly what happened to John Brashear. So I can extremely relate <laughs> to his experience and many Many ways. So, back to the story of John Brashear. 1876 comes around. He's 36 years old. As old as I, you know, I'm 37. So, so my age, right? He, uh, Samuel Langley of the Allegheny Observatory, which has been around since the 1850s by this time, since Brashear himself was 10 years old. I mean, the Allegheny Observatory was there. Kind of like a private institution meant for only the scholarly types, you know, and uh, the public wasn't really allowed to go there and, just go look at the stars, uh, which is something Brashear wanted to change. And uh, he did. Okay, so that's a good story. But 1876 comes along. He has enough guts to write to Samuel Langley and say, like, you know, I've made my own telescope. I'd like for you to check out the lens I made and, you know, just see what you think. So Langley tells him, sure, you know, come up to the observatory. This time it's located where Triangle Tech is today. So if you're familiar with that area of the north side, that's where the original, because there's two, there was two. Uh, the original was stood right there. And he goes up, um, nervous as all heck, you know, shaking, you know, just to meet this man who was a legend. I mean, this is the guy who mapped the sun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot to that story, which we'll talk about in the Allegheny Observatory. But anyways, um, he decides to, uh, uh, you know, he tells him about this, this lens. He takes one look at it. He says, this is magnificent Mr. Brazier. <laughs> he calls him, right? He's like, uh. What else can you do? Can you can you just do lenses, or can you do anything else? Because I'm looking kind of for a prism that I can make into a spectrograph, right? Which is a, a, a an instrument that you could use a prism to stare at a, a an object in the sky, like a star, like the star Vega, let's for example, and you look at it through a spectrograph, and you can see the elements come through represented by colors of the you know the of the spectrum. So um, you know you can find out if things are made from helium or how much so and or gamma rays and, you know, all the different rays, you know, radiation that's coming off of them. And uh, they even tried to develop uh, an invention that could do it on human beings. 
later in life was Samuel Langley had this idea that he could, you know, look through a machine and see people and like their auras, right? Um, we'll talk about that on Samuel Langley. Anyways, it was a success, you know. So he tells him, like, look, I got this 12-inch piece of glass. Could you take this home and maybe make it better? You know, the ones I have to write, I have to come all the way from Europe. I have to wait months for them to come. You're right here in Pittsburgh. It's like, if you could do this in Pittsburgh, I think we could have a nice little relationship here. So he goes, takes it home. He polishes the surface, makes it, you know, as best as he possibly can. He with comes, Phoebe. Right, with Phoebe. Uh, he comes back. By the way, that, that experience of him coming back home that one day, and finding that the fire is lit and everything is clean and ready to go and that, you know, the machine's all oiled up and her waiting there for him, you know, like open arms was one of the most impactful memories and moments in his entire life. He, he from that moment on, knew that he had a partner in crime and not some kind of companion. You know, this was a uh, someone who he considered an equal and, uh, and especially in uh, he, he knew and he confessed in the book that you know she might not have been. Uh, the smartest person when it comes to astronomy, but she believed in the passion of him and was able to support him no matter what. And they didn't have money. I mean, they didn't have lots of money. I mean, he would go, uh, he talks about this one time. He um, would rather, instead of buying a new pair of pants, go buy the latest scientific book because he, you know, he wasn't a, a, a learned man in school. Uh, he spent every waking moment reading and learning about the stars, about anything he was interested in. And that reminds me of a great quote by Mark Twain, one of my favorite quotes of all time. There's a couple of good ones, you know, of course, but uh, I never let school interfere with my education. <laughs> so as soon as I learned that quote myself when I was like 15 years old, I was like, well, that's it for school. <laughs> so, and, uh, uh, and that's the truth. Uh, I've learned more outside of school than I've ever learned in school. Um, and uh, same thing with Brashear. So during this time, he's 37, he's in his late 30s, right? He... Uh, Decided to start doing something similar to what you would do today uh, in the social media of its time, which was the newspapers, and started writing little, you know, paragraph, couple paragraphs about what was going on in the night sky, and he would submit these to the local newspapers, and they would run them as like a little, you know, like, hey, here's the comet that's coming by. Make sure you look here at this certain time at night, and you should be able to see the comet. Or, you know, here's cool facts about the sun, or, you know, about the planets and you know, about the rings of Saturn or something, you know, just write these little, you know, little articles, nice articles. So he's, he's done with this piece of glass that Langley asks him to fix. And he brings it back to the observatory. He sees this man sitting on the steps with Langley and uh, he's afraid to approach him, but Langley calls him over anyways. He says, Hey, uh, you know, Mr. Brashear, uh, meet William Thaw. And he's like, I, you know, how do you do? And he's also interested in this glass, uh, that is perfect. I mean, that he, he strove himself in perfection, and uh, there was not a single indentation, you know, or like, think think about how old windows, you see an old house with windows, you see that glass, you see how it's not really, like, really well made. It has those little divots and... Yeah, imperfections. Imperfections, you know, like, you know, when you're creating a telescope, you can't have imperfections, and it took a lot of time in order to make that happen, and skill. It wasn't something you could just order or make a machine and do it. Um, you had to do it yourself. Um laboriously uh and a lot of this i'm skipping over some things because he had a lot to do with uh, the silvering process of mirrors and was able to now he, he couldn't afford any of this the the right the right way that you're supposed to silver a mirror so a piece of glass you take you put a silver compound on it and you can use that as either a refracting or reflecting telescopes you know where you could use this actual light from the object to, to navigate you or from an outside source um he created a, a silvering process which would later be called the Brashear process uh, that revolutionized the way telescopes are made to this day. And uh, they did make other easier versions of this, but it was uh, not until much, much later in life. So this process that he created uh, would later change the world and change astronomy forever. Now, so he also puts an ad in the paper. So now he realizes that he could do this. He could make these, uh, these things. You know, William Thaw is – so he comes up with the steps, right? William Thaw standing there. He's like, well, who's William Thaw? William Thaw is a, uh, a descendant of a, a man who created the first bank of Pennsylvania um, and the Pittsburgh branch of that bank. He, his grandfather invested heavily in the Pennsylvania canals, eventually into the railroads, where William Thaw was, had his hand in developing. Uh, he, at that time, was the vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And in uh, a little strange connection, 
about William Thaw, you know, that Thaw last name. And if you listen to some of our other episodes, you might have heard that Thaw name before from when we talked about Harry K. Thaw and the girl in the red velvet swing. <laughs> right. Uh, and, we're, and we will examine Henry K. further in a, his own yeah, episode. Yeah, uh, because he's one strange character. But uh, lo and behold, his daddy was William Thaw, the same individual that Brashear meets on the steps of the Allegheny Observatory on this fateful night in 1876. And he tells them, young boy, right, um, I too am interested in the scientific endeavors of what you're trying to do. And uh, would you mind coming by my house uh, later, you know, tomorrow night and tell me just about a little bit about yourself and about what you are trying to do? So he says, sure. So he's nervous, you know, of course, as the vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroads asks you to come to his house and talk to him about who knows what. So he shows up the next night. Um, uh, William Thaw is apparently exhausted from the day. He's laying in the lounge, you know, with a rag on his head. And he says, you know, tell me about your life. Tell me who you are. And uh, and John tells about in his autobiography that he basically told this guy everything from birth until the moment he met him. <laughs> right. And, uh, and everything in between. Told him about Phoebe. Told him about... You know, the whole connection of, uh, you know, his grandfather and, and the works. And uh, he said, you know what? Uh, he spends an hours there just talking through all throughout the night. He goes, uh, you know, you tell me about this telescope that you created at your house, this five-inch one, and uh, and all the people that you have that come there. I'd, I'd like to come see it if I could. And he said, sure. So he comes there the next night uh, to his house on Southside Slopes on this Holt Street and uh, sees that somebody was already there, some local neighbor, some farmer. You know, was traveling through and stopped by to see the moon or whatever. And uh, he let him do it. And he thought it was kind of a cute thing. You know, he was witnessing, you know, that's just kind of like this free astronomical, you know, ex, you know, the experience that he was giving to everybody in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, he goes in, he meets Phoebe for the first time. Phoebe's like, oh, please let me cook you some dinner. You know, I'm a good cook. And she was a good cook. And she fed him, you know, profusely. And uh, he mentions that it was the great. In fact, later in life, it, before he even dies, it was William Thaw talks about how great Phoebe's cooking was, <laughs> and just the personality of who she was, and how they uh, welcomed everybody, no matter who it was, immigrants, people didn't speak English, all the way to people like him, and they treated them all the same. And he says, you know, come back to my shed. Let me show you this, uh, you know, the the little telescope I got going here. And uh, he sees it, and he's you know impressed, and he goes back out to the parlor and he grabs Phoebe and John by the hands and he tells them, um, you have the boat, you have the captain, you have the pilot, but you don't have the water, right? The sail in He's like, let me provide you with that water. I want you to come up with some plans tonight. Come see me at my office tomorrow and tell me what you need in order to make your dreams become a reality and he leaves Rashir's like talks to his wife well what does that mean does he mean like he's gonna loan me some money and you know i don't want to be in debt you know to him i'm already in debt i'm already 800 dollars in debt or whatever that was a lot back then he says i can't really afford to go any more debt and um he he uh so he goes to him with these plans and he goes uh how much do you think it's going to cost to build you a bigger nicer you know work place because uh you know i think that you could probably get a good relationship with samuel langley and maybe some other scientist around and and maybe make some lenses why don't you put an ad out in the paper and see you know how that happens and um he says it's going to cost so many thousands of dollars to build a better shed and better workplace and and the materials that he might need and he said just wrote him a blank check he says here you go i'm doing it in the name of science science and he goes hey you know look i don't want to be in debt to you i don't want to owe you all this money he's like I'm telling you, take this money and leave. Right? Um, do it in the name of science. I support science. You are science. Here's the money. And um, that experience, in fact, he only thing he had on him was the newspaper of the day. And uh, when he met William Thaw the first time and he gave him directions to his house, he wrote him on the margins of the paper. Yeah. And he mentions now to Boggy that he had that he had that paper to this day. Right. <laughs> so impactful moment in his life. Now. Long story short, okay, because I can't go on forever about him, even though I would, right? But um, he decides to start – he puts an ad out in the papers. It says, you know, is anybody interested in buying your own telescope? And right here in Pittsburgh, right to, you know, number three, Holt Street and John Brashear, he gets 500 responses, you know, within the next couple of weeks. So – and like I said before, think about how long it takes to make one single lens 
that you could accidentally, you know, cough in the wrong way and it's going to crack. Uh, and that would happen. Like, the change in temperatures, you know, would affect the glass. I mean, it was insane, like, the detail that goes into this. And he was a perfectionist. Um, that he was way overwhelmed, right? And uh, he went back to this this guy, uh, you know, the, the the Thaw character, and says, like, look, you know, I'm going to – me and my wife, we can only do so much. You know, how am I going to fill all these orders? And he goes, I got some rooms, more space up farther up Perrysville Avenue that uh, you could have, right? And I'll build you the – you know, you tell me what you need, and I'll build you the thing. I'll even build you a house, and uh, you just come there and do what you need to do in order to get this done and, uh, and, and do it. And I'll set you up with even this time – a five-year lease, right, so that you can create your business on your own, you know, start selling these optical lenses for telescopes and, and, and make it out on your own, and you become your own man, your own businessman. And that never really worked out. <laughs> so while he did start filling orders and, and people would be putting orders in and he'd send them out and he'd, he'd deliver, you know, he would not ever get payment upon receipt. He would just say, here's your lens. And just walk away. He would just forget to charge the person. You know, something. And then, uh, so the only time they said that William Thaw was ever crass with him or whatever or yelled at him was he, he published, he republishes a letter in the autobiography. It says, like, look, you, you know, it's all nice. And I'm really good that you believe in science that much that you'd be willing just to give it out for free. But uh, you, if you want to succeed, you need to at least come up with, like, a price for your stuff or, like, charge someone at least something, you know, if you want to <laughs> yeah. do it. You know, I'm trying to help you out here, you know, like. Please, you know, just charge at least something. You know, figure out how much it costs to pay your employees or whatever. You know, anything. You know, so, um, so he eventually does, and uh, he his technology was so far advanced in telescope making and these optical lenses that most of his telescopes that he designed are still in use to this day. The telescope at John Hopkins University, Cambridge University, Paris Observatory, West Point. Okay. Uh, universities of Ohio, Illinois, Yale, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Michigan, all their observatories all use John Brashear lenses, lenses that were created right here in Pittsburgh by John Brashear himself in his factory. Now, uh, above the door of his house uh, that he still welcomed visitors in for the rest of his life, uh, he had a saying on that door. And uh, that saying, when the house was eventually torn down, was moved to the Brashear Association, which is on the south side today, and it still hangs on the wall. And it says, Summer Beneath These Stars is a work which you alone were meant to do. Never rest until you have found it. So that's what he used to walk underneath, you know, every single day. He becomes a success. There, there's a whole tale which we will talk about when we talk about the Allegheny Observatory and how they had to build a second one and how this one was going to be designed to be free and open to the public for forever. And to this day, in 2019, if you want to go to the Allegheny Observatory, just go. And it is still free to the public to this day, thanks to John Brashear. He also uh, was so well-liked uh, that people called him Uncle John. This was his thing, right? And uh, he, he had an experience while traveling through Europe. I mean, he, he went to three lecture tours, and last time it was in the Asian continent. He went to a blind a school for blind kids, and this fascinated him. You know, So when he came back to Pittsburgh, he started getting involved with the Western Pennsylvania School of the Blind. And would go there and try to describe to the children what stars and planets look like, right, to the blind. You know, by telling stories about these heroes of ancient Rome and Greece or whatever that are now permanently in the sky, you know. And how do you describe that to a blind child? Mm. And um, he, he was, I mean, loved by all the kids. And I would play with them, you know. And, and same thing with uh, uh, different groups all over Pittsburgh. He was even popular with adults and the fact that. Not going to college himself, you know, just a tiny little business school, you know, Duff's, you know, for bookkeeping, right? He was able to somehow be offered the opportunity to become the chancellor at the University of Pittsburgh, which he accepted after turning him down multiple times because he didn't feel like he deserved it. Like, he has no doctorate, he, doesn't, he has no degree, he went to fifth grade. Yeah. Know? So, like, uh, but yeah, sure enough, he, he did it. He became that. He also became the director, and uh, Andrew Carnegie, you know, was looking for. Uh, you know, to put funds towards a school that he wanted to create called the Carnegie Institute of Technology, which later became Carnegie Mellon. And he put Brashear single-handedly responsible f to become the director of the first Carnegie Institute of Technology. Um, uh, Henry Clay Frick, of all the bad things he did, the one good thing he did was said, look, I got a quarter million dollars. I'm going to give it to you, John Brashear. I want you to figure out how to spend it in Pittsburgh to help the education of our youth. 
He did that. <laughs> Not bad for a fifth grade educated person. You know, his wife passes away in 1910, sadly, you know, his love of his life. And, and the connection really is between his wife and himself. And they were un- inseparable. Um, he got sick from food poisoning, uh, lasted for about six months, an ordeal, and he passed away in 1920 at the age of 79. On his crypt in the tombstone, you know, there's like a crypt, um, as he was cremated and with his wife and their ashes combined. And he was buried underneath the telescope at the Allegheny Observatory in Riverview Park. And on the outside of the inscriptions reads, we have loved the stars too fondly to be fearful of the night. That's a good quote, huh? It's a great way to end it. <laughs> Brashear, don't forget this man. This man was a, a visionary, a, a, a Someone who never gave up. You know, he knew what he wanted to do. He didn't care how much it cost or what it did or if it ever brought him a single dime. He just did it because he loved it and he wanted to show people the stars. And he wanted you to enjoy forever, the public, to have the opportunity to see Saturn for yourself. That's why we do have to go. we got to bring the kids, right, and go to this observatory because it's nothing. I don't think that my kids have seen Saturn either through the telescope. So it's something that will change your perspective on things, you know, that you're not alone out there. I recommend buying his book. You can find copies of it. It's probably digital by now. Uh, the autobiography of John Brashear. And, uh, you know, think about him from time to time, you know, and, uh, think about what he did and, and good old uncle John in Pittsburgh history. And, uh, he will be an influence in your life from this day forward. I guarantee you that every week on the Pittsburgh Oddcast, we answer your questions that you send in to John. And this week we have, uh, two more. That's right. This this question comes uh, from Justin Sanita, and he asks that he lives in the Bridgeville area and was always curious about a name of something. Now, of course, we did our name episodes before in the past, and we will be doing one more, uh, the final trilogy, the end of all <laughs> trilogies. Yeah, until we do another until one. Until we do another one. That's right. And uh, I don't know if we ever addressed this one, and that's why he probably asked this question. And um, in that Bridgeville area and all around Pittsburgh, you see this name, Chartiers, or the Chartiers Valley. Who is Chartiers? Why is it called Chartiers? Chartiers was named after a young man named Pierre Chartier, uh, also known as Peter Chartier, and who was born in 1690 here in western Pennsylvania and was born to a, a French soldier and a Native American woman. Uh, he had the unique aspect of being, uh, you know, mixed uh, Native American and French settler that he was able to successfully become one of the largest fur traders in North American history <laughs> in the early Western Pennsylvania trade. And because of his Shawnee heritage, uh, he was able to even become a tribal chief later in life and was an advocate against uh, uh, the sale of alcohol in indigenous communities within Pennsylvania and for Native American civil rights. So that's who Pierre Chartiers was, and we named these uh, places after him. Uh, interesting little footnote, I mean, that, that he was uh, around. No one really knows what happened to him. He uh, was last reported uh, to be traveling, and this was in 1759, and apparently the story goes that he was seen at a village, a Shawnee's village, where he came down with smallpox and was killed uh like the millions of others who were killed during the smallpox uh, outbreaks of the early native american days caused by a pittsburgh incident which we could talk about in some other show so you got chartier's run right chartier's valley chartier's valley high school of course and the works chartier's houston chartier's houston maybe okay <laughs> so anyways there's chartier's the uh, next question comes from all the way up north in McCandless, as Diane Ellis asks, was there any truth to the supposed school shooting in McCandless in 1911? So you think about, you know, violence in school places and specifically school shootings, you think that's a recent thing. You know, this happened, you know, since Columbine, right, in the 90s or whatever. You know, there wasn't really that many school shootings beforehand, right, or at least not anyone to write home about. Well, sure enough, on October 15, 1911, there was a big one to write home about. And I'm going to read to you from the uh, – this is actually – it was such a big story. It went it went to the AP, you know, the Associated Press. And this, this article actually appears in the Nashville, Tennessee newspaper. 
on October 15th. And bear with me as I read you these two paragraphs here. The headline is, People Hike as Woman Shoots Up Town and Farms, Fires into Buildings, and Chases Teachers and Pupils, Uses a Revolver. Since Pittsburgh, PA, October 14th, 1911, Miss Maggie Reineman, 43-year-old daughter of a wealthy farmer in McCanley's Township, is in the Allegheny County Jail on a technical charge of disorderly conduct. Before daybreak, she armed herself with two automatic revolvers and left her home. Before she was had tried, she had shot up two hotels, one post office, one schoolhouse, and chased a teacher and over 100 students and the school board president for over a half a mile. Visited every single house within a radius of 10 miles, and at the point of her revolvers, drove all the farmers and their families to the hills. It is believed that she is insane, clearly. The woman first made her appearance before daylight on the, on the Five Mile Inn in Westview. And put that in perspective, it was by Motorelli Stadium is where the Five Mile Inn once stood. She fired a round of shots into the ceiling of the place, and the guests rushed helter-skelter down the stairs, panic-stricken. She then went to a country hotel on the Pine Creek where she shot holes through the doors. Following, she visited farmhouses, shattered their windows with bullets, and put the inmates up to a fight. About 10 o'clock, she was, went to the Logan Schoolhouse at Pine Creek, whereupon Miss Gertrude Siebert, the teacher, and Thomas Sarver, the school board president, barricaded the doors. When Miss Siebert refused to open them, the woman fired a fusillade. This terrified those in the schoolhouse, and they ran out of the building, not stopping until they had fled at least a half a mile. By that time, the sheriff's officers in the communicated have been communicated with. The sheriff sent Deputy Wright to arrest the woman, and before the arrival, Mrs. Reinemann had made her way to the post office of the village of Keown, which is Perrysville, about a few miles away. She fled. She fired a round of shots into that building and threatened the postmaster, John Sarver, with death if he butted in. So there you go. <laughs> How's that for a uh, story of the times? Well, what happened? Is that where it ends? It is where it ends. She was indeed uh, committed to a mental asylum, and she remained there for the rest of her life. And um, it goes to show you that uh, these things happened before. And, um, you know, what can we learn about that? You know, uh, you know, there's not too much we can learn other than, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, do you, what can you say about something that alarming and that shocking? I mean... It's crazy to think that something like that happened back then, uh, just like it does today. And um, obviously, we didn't make it any better. Uh, we never solved the problem back then. And, and this is when people had uh, there was no real rules against getting uh, arming yourself as a teacher. <laughs> so uh, it didn't really stop her, did it? So there you go. So that's your odd questions for this episode. Make sure you write to us oddpittsburgh at gmail dot com or Mister Odd at oddpittsburgh dot com. Or contact me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you fingers lead you, and submit your own odd question to be answered on our next episode. So, without further ado, that's it, Fort Pitt.